Good afternoon. My name is Kelly, and I will be your conference operator for today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to today's conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, then the number 1 on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. Thank you. I will now turn the call over to Jerry Chia to begin. I'd like to thank everybody for standing by and welcome to Start or Not to Start, Secrets to Invisalign Patient Selection. During our presentation today, if you'd like to ask a question through the WebEx interface, please do so by clicking the question mark icon on the lower right-hand corner of your screen. If you have any WebEx technical issues today, please dial 1-866-229-3239. Again, that's 1-866-229-3239. At this time, I'd now like to turn the call over to David Molman. Please go ahead, David. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert program to start or not to start Secrets to Invisalign Patient Selection with Dr. Ben Moralia. You will earn two CE hours for attending today's program and instructions on how to obtain your CE certificates at the conclusion of Dr. Morales' presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor site account. Please allow two to four weeks for CE hours to appear on your account. Please note you are able to listen to today's program via the webcast, as well as dialing in via telephone. At the end of Dr. Morales' presentation, those of you who have dialed in by phone will be able to ask both live and text questions. And those of you listening via the webcast may only ask questions via text. I apologize in advance if we're unable to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today at AlignTechInstitute.com where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Ben Moralia. Dr. Ben Morali has been treating Invisalign patients since 2004 at his private practice in Mount Kisco, New York. He continues to share his Invisalign expertise by conducting study clubs in this tri-state area, lecturing throughout the country, teaching our Clear Essentials courses, and has been a presenter at Invisalign's GP Summit in Las Vegas. Dr. Morali is a graduate of the State University at Buffalo School of Dental Medicine and a member of the ADA, the AGD, the New York State AGD, and the Ninth District <coughs> Dental Society. So without further ado, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Ben Moralia. Dr. Moralia, you now have the floor. Thank you very much, David. Well, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon to the East Coast people. And uh, we're going to spend the next hour going over uh, a few of my secrets to Invisalign patient selection. And uh, hopefully that'll open some eyes and shed some light on uh, how I'm looking into the mouths and kind of figuring out uh, who I'd like to get started and who's going to be a really nice, uh, let's say, smooth and trouble-free case and uh, how I go about doing that. So uh, let's get past the disclaimer here. The statements, views, and opinions expressed in this program and related course materials are those of the speaker. That would be me. Align Technology Incorporated may not endorse such statements, views, or opinions. Attendees are responsible for legal and regulatory compliance of any marketing and referral programs. Uh, this slide are, is a slide of my credentials, uh, but most of that's fabricated because I'm way too young to have accomplished anything. So I'm going to skip past that before anybody gets to read it and discover my secret. Here's the four secrets to patient selection. I'm going to cover these in pretty good detail as we go through. Now, the first one that's popping up for you is not a secret, so it does not have the number one in front of it. Stable, healthy periodontal structures uh, should be a given and a known to everyone 
doing any type of Invisalign uh, therapy. Really, you'd like to have stable and healthy periodontal structures. That shouldn't be a secret. That should be common knowledge. It's much safer and healthier to move teeth when the gum and the bone are healthy and stable and there's no bleeding and there's very shallow pocketing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as far as the four secrets to patient selection go, I like to start with the maxillary arch. And my, my big secret, number one, is that the maxillary arch is the key to success. And so I, my favorite photograph is the photograph of the upper arch. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the next hour looking at the patient's photos, and we're really going to focus in on the upper arch. And I'm going to teach you all the things that I'm looking for in that arch, in that picture, to let me know that this is going to be an excellent case for Invisalign to handle, and not only handle, but to uh, basically produce a perfect and ideal outcome so that everybody's happy on every level, and the patient has a beautiful smile, and also a perfect occlusion, and then healthy periodontal structures that they can go forward through the decades with and enjoy their own teeth for the rest of their lives. Secret number two is what I like to call diagnosing and treating the cause. And so we are going to review some of the causes of crowding. And so it's nice to identify in the mouth what was the cause of the crowding because it's a whole lot smoother and kinder for the patient and yourselves if you're actually treating the cause versus treating the symptoms. And those are two different worlds. When, when we treat the symptoms of something, we get a different path and a different outcome as opposed to when we treat the cause of something. So we're going to review a little bit of diagnosis and treating of causes of crowding. Now, secret number three is the transverse measurement. And it's an orthodontic measurement. I didn't make it up. The transverse measurement is obviously a dimension in the world of orthodontics, and I'm going to teach you today what the transverse measurement is in the mouth, and we'll, I'll also show you how I employ that to help me as a diagnostic tool and then also as a treatment tool so that I can uh, use it to help better develop my expansion so that I can produce proper arch form and proper arch width for my patients. Now, the fourth secret is the buccolingual incl inclination. And the buccolingual inclination is a handful to say, but it's not that difficult to understand. And I have slides coming up shortly to, in photographic view to give you an idea of what exactly I mean by buccolingual inclination. So we're going to cover that. So now you know my four secrets. The maxillary arch is the key. Diagnose and treat the cause. What is the transverse measurement going to be and how will it affect my case? And what about the buccolingual inclination? All right, let's move forward. Secret number one, let's focus on the maxillary arch for a minute. So for me, <clears throat> it really determines how the entire case is going to run. What is the maxillary arch doing, okay? It's not about the amount of crowding. I spend very little time focusing in on the lower anterior teeth, and I know for GPs that's quite common. Right away, we look in the mouth, we look at the anterior teeth, we look at those lower teeth all jumbled up, maybe the upper teeth a little bit too, but we get swept away with how much crowding we might see, and we might even get a little bit nervous or a little bit <clears throat> uptight about what kind of crowding the front teeth have. And the more we stare at the lower front teeth and their crowding, the more difficult it's going to be to treat the case. It's really not about the amount of crowding in the mouth, okay? I never measure what the crowding is. I will not look at overlap and say, oh, there's two millimeters here and one millimeter here and a millimeter there and a half there and come up with a number of six or seven or eight or nine or ten millimeters of crowding. I'm really not interested in the amount of crowding in the mouth. It's not about the lower anterior teeth, okay? 
part of the maxillary arch being the key as one of my secrets is that it's, there's nothing to do with the lower anterior teeth right now. If we're going to unravel some serious crowding and we're looking at patients as to whether or not they're good Invisalign candidates, the big key is the maxillary arch determines how and where the expansion can take place, which allows that lower crowding to go away. Okay? When the maxillary arch can be developed, the lower arch will follow it. The lower anterior teeth will have a place to unravel into. So it's a sequence of events that gets us to those lower anterior teeth and not necessarily just getting in there and doing IPR in the anterior teeth and trying to spin them into place. Um, that's not my favorite technique. And so what I like to do is look at that whole mouth, look at all 28 teeth, look at the shape and size and width of the arch forms because as soon as I determine that the maxillary arch could benefit from expansion and it would be appropriate to do so, now I know the lower posterior segment has to follow that expansion. And once the upper expands and the lower follows it, all of a sudden there's room and space to unravel that anterior crowding that we see almost immediately when we look in the mouth. It's not about the age of the patient. It really doesn't have any bearing on the case, whether the patient is 20, 30, 60, 80. It, it has no relationship to um, you know, what is going on with the patient. I treat all ages up to the age of 81 is um, my so-called record for age in the office. And the 81-year-old we treated was um, one of the happiest patients that we've done Invisalign on. So age is not really so much a factor as to whether or not I'll start an Invisalign case or not. If you have that stable, healthy periodontal structure to work with, and the patient's you know, interested and willing to do Invisalign, then certainly it will provide a benefit to them. So now let's take a look at what it is about. It's all about the shape and width of the maxillary arch. And what I mean by shape and width of the maxillary arch, do we have proper arch form and proper arch width? And that's where we're headed with this next segment. So now that we know it's all about the shape and width of the maxillary arch, that means it is all about the posterior teeth. <clears throat> so that big secret number one, the maxillary arch is the key. As soon as I'm focusing in on the maxillary arch, I'm more interested in where the posterior teeth are because as soon as we determine where those posterior teeth are in the maxillary arch, now we know if we have the proper shape and width of that arch to accommodate the lower teeth. And if we don't, that's wonderful news. So part of what we're determining as we unravel these sequences to Invisalign case selection is the focusing in on the maxillary arch to determine if we have proper form and width. And if we don't, then it's amazing how much crowding you could unravel with very little to no IPR, okay? And if there's one thing you could do to your life to simplify your Invisalign treatment, we know it would be to eliminate the IPR altogether. So we're going to take a look at how this helps us do that, okay? So as long as we've now understood what we're going to do with the maxillary arch, as far as it being a key determinant of where we can go with our expanding and things, we should look at what causes crowding so we get an understanding of where that crowding came from. Now this leads us into my secret number two, okay? Secret number two is diagnose and treat the cause. There are things that cause crowding, and then there are things that are symptoms of crowding. And so we like to distinguish those because, as I mentioned before, treating the cause gives you a different path and a different outcome than treating the symptoms. So let's go through the causes of crowding real quick. The number one cause of crowding is improper arch form, okay? Improper arch form is a cause of crowding. What does that mean? Well, we know what it means. We see it every day in the office. The V-shaped arch the omega-shaped arch, 
the square or box-shaped arch. And then there are combinations of the above. And we know our patients who look just like this. We see them all day, all week, all year long. And they walk in with an improper arch form. And when you have a V-shaped arch or an omega-shaped arch or a square or box-shaped arch or any of those combinations, you're going to have an amount of crowding in there. Okay? And those are what I mean. that's what I mean by improper arch form. These are all bad arch forms, okay? Well, what does good arch form look like? It'd be nice to define that. Now, arch form takes its shape from the second molar all the way around to the opposite second molar. So I mean tooth number two. And if we want to establish what good arch form looks like, it means connecting the dots. Go from the buccal cusps of your second molar to your first molar, through your premolars, and then start hitting the incisal edges of all of those anterior teeth and come right back around to the other side. Now, this right here would be an excellent example of what good arch form looks like. So if we can trace those buccal cusps through the incisal edges and work our way all the way around, we've got great arch form. Now, when the patient walks in with a V-shaped arch or an omega-shaped arch or that square or box-shaped arch, it does not look like this. And the goal is to create this, change it. So what can take a V-shaped arch to an arch like this? Well, that would be Invisalign. That's the whole point of providing Invisalign because it's very capable of developing proper arch form. So I'm very excited when I see patients walk in with a V-shaped, omega-shaped, square shape, because I know I can convert that into a beautiful arch like this. And the way I remembered this, I was taught a long time ago that a V-shaped arch, if we were thinking about the architectural world, a V-shaped arch is a Gothic arch. If you've been through Europe or even in online and looked at photographs of cathedrals and architecture in uh, Europe, you would see a V-shaped arch and identify it as a Gothic arch form. Well, we're looking to convert the Gothic arch form to this nice dome. And this nice dome, if you've seen pictures in Italy, you would know that this is a Roman arch. A Roman arch is a round arch form. And so uh, when it pertains to the mouth, the maxillary and mandibular arch forms should be a Roman arch. That's an acceptable and ideal arch form in the mouth, and we know that a V-shape is not. So the goal is to take that Gothic arch that the patient walked into and convert it to a Roman arch so that you would have established proper arch form. As the leading cause of crowding in proper arch form, when you take an arch and convert it to a proper arch form, you are unraveling the crowding, okay? So we're going to be able to treat some very nice, severe amounts of crowding with little to no IPR in relatively short amounts of time. So we're looking for this type of arch form, and we're going to get into this case later on and show you where it started. This happens to be final photos. Number two, so we know the first cause of crowding is improper arch form. The second cause of crowding is improper arch width, okay? Now, what does that mean? Well, let's take a look at a little bit of research and this was done over a period of about five decades, but there's a very simple piece of information for you here to understand what kind of arch width is an acceptable range. And uncrowded adults have a 35 to 39 millimeter transverse measurement. Now the transverse measurement is the shortest distance between T3 and 14, the upper first molars, measured at the gum line. I'm gonna show a photograph of how I measure that in a moment. But getting back to that piece of research, uncrowded adults. That means the population of people 15 and over that was studied 
that did not require or need any type of orthodontic treatment was shown to have a width across the upper arch of 35 to 39 millimeters. The range accounts for tooth size and gender predominantly, okay? And so obviously female would be on the lighter side of the numbers, male might be on the heavier side of the numbers. Uh, tooth size, if you have smaller teeth, you're going to be on the lighter side of those numbers. If you have larger teeth, you're going to be on the larger side of those numbers. So if we know that an uncrowded adult, meaning an adult that has no need for orthodontic care, their teeth are perfectly placed, they have nice arch form, their width is going to be in a range of about 35 to 39 millimeters. So the transverse measurement is my secret number three. I measure that on every single patient because I like to know what kind of arch width I have to start. And that gives me an idea of where I can go to finish. So the transverse measurement is a distance and it's a linear measurement. It's just measuring between 3 and 14. And here's what it looks like in the mouth. Obviously, you're looking at my, my little Typodon model and my Boldy gauge. And so you can see here, I've just placed it as if I would have done this on a patient. Okay, if we slide the little forks into the mouth, we can place them at the gum line right here and right here. So we now have an opening or a distance between tooth number 3 and tooth number 14 of, if we look at the markers here, 3123. So we can see our typodont actually with an average size, probably 8.6 or 8.8 millimeter central incisor width, comes in at a 33 measurement, okay? And 33 millimeters across those, the palate between these two teeth is a very acceptable arch width. So now in a perfect world, we're gonna measure somewhere between 35 and 39. 33 is not a crime. But every now and then people walk in at 30, 28, 27, 25, very narrow V-shaped arches or even the omega shape because it squeezes 3 and 14 in a little more. And we're going to look at those in a few minutes. But what we do with the Boley gauge is we measure it on every patient. And if you have study models, you can just measure the model. Otherwise, these prongs are usually long enough and the arms will extend right in the mouth. You can slide the gauge open and make the measurement between the two molars and just record it. Then you have an idea. Well, is my patient's width somewhere around 35? Is it 33? Or is it something like 28, 29, 30? And that's a great way to start establishing where is arch width in the mix of my information. Now, the third cause of crowding is improper torque of anterior teeth. And improper torque of anterior teeth is just a bunch of fancy words that means the roots are out of position. Okay? So you notice the first two causes of crowding, improper arch form and improper arch width, deal with the entire arch in its entirety, meaning anterior and posterior teeth. The third crowding restricts itself right to the anterior teeth. An improper torque of anterior teeth, in other words, when the roots are out of position, is a cause of crowding. And so the, the quickest one to envision there is the class 2 division 2 patient because you can put that right into your head immediately. Class 2 division 2. 8 and 9 are reclined. 7 and 10 are proclined. 7 and 10 are usually mesial, kind of trapping 8 and 9. And the lower anterior teeth, 22 to 27, are typically elevated and also then very crowded. And so all of the roots of the anterior teeth are out of position for a class 2 division 2 case, and that is a leading cause of their crowding, the improper torque of the anterior teeth. And so it's going to be a little less of a concern as far as our four secrets are concerned today, but it is the number three cause of crowding. Now moving on to the fourth one, large teeth. And I want to spend a minute on this just so we understand what the significance of large teeth is. 
when we're looking at small average or large teeth, we have to remember we're talking about the width, not the length. The length of the tooth has nothing to do with the crowding, okay? It's the width. How much room in its width does it occupy in the arch? Because we have a defined space from one side of the arch to the other. <clears throat> and we have to have all of these teeth fitting in there with a mesial and distal contact appropriate so that there's no crowding when we're done. Well, the width of upper teeth does have an effect. Certainly there are small, average, and large teeth. So we'll focus in on the average first. We're going to establish the average width of an upper central incisor at 8.9 millimeters. And depending upon what textbook you pick up, it's going to be somewhere between 8.6 and 8.9. So roughly, a 9 millimeter central incisor is an average width. Now there are two things to consider with the genetics here real quick. The first is that we're looking at the upper central incisor width only because the genetics do follow that if your upper central incisor is wide, all of your teeth will be wide in the scale. The only difference or the only exception to that rule is when we have the peg laterals. So a tooth size discrepancy with teeth numbers 7 and 10 being peg laterals, that can throw a little monkey wrench into it, but that's the only exception. So the genetics do hold true for if we have average central incisor width, we have average every single other tooth width. And the same goes for small or large. If we have small central incisor width, we have small every other tooth width, okay? Now, there is a distinction between large, and that happens at about the 10 millimeter mark, okay? When we measure the upper central incisor width, and it measures 10 millimeters or more, it becomes a significant part of why there's crowding. Because at 10 millimeters or greater, that is going to occupy a lot of distance in an arch length. And the, the component of the genetics that sometimes is a problem for us because we want to move these teeth with Invisalign, we still need to have a foundation under them, and that means the alveolus. The alveolar housing is where these teeth are contained. And we don't just get to move them wherever we want. We absolutely have to consider the base that they're in. Well, the reason large teeth becomes more significant uh, consideration in the cause of crowding is because the genetics, the mismatch here is that just because a patient is given large teeth does not mean they're given an excellent or big foundation to hold them in. So there's a disconnect in the genetics there. As compared with the width of the tooth from tooth to tooth, the genetics hold. Remember we mentioned if you have an average sized tooth, on the central incisor, all the rest will also be average. But if you have large central incisors, you might have 10 or 11 millimeter central incisors on your hand, it does not follow that the genetics the patient is given the foundation to house those teeth. And we know that view. We've seen it both ways. Imagine the patient who walks in and has the tremendously wide teeth. So we've got big teeth, 10, 11 millimeter centrals, they're all going to be large. And when they smile, we don't really see a lot of red or bleedy gum tissue, no plaque and bacteria, they have good habits, but they have a lot of buccal recession, almost from the central all the way back. It's because they just were not given the proper foundation to house teeth that big. The opposite is also true. We've all seen the patient with the small tooth. In other words, the cutoff there is about eight millimeters. And so when we have someone walk in that has an, a less than eight millimeter width of the upper central incisor, we have small teeth on our hands. And every now and then you see someone walk in, give you a big smile, and we have that eight millimeter width of the upper central incisor, 
And then we have lots of spacing because they have a tremendous or monstrous alveolar housing. So the genetic disconnect can happen there. It doesn't mean that you get small teeth. You get a small bone or alveolar housing to hold the teeth. Sometimes you get the big football player walks in, six foot four, monstrous kid, big smile, tiny little teeth, but a tremendous bone, lots of spaces. And so you can understand that just because we're getting small teeth doesn't mean we get a small foundation. Just because we're getting large teeth doesn't mean we're getting a large foundation. Now, it's more important to consider for the large teeth because that's where we have our opportunity to either help and control the periodontal progress of the patient or to hurt it. And so I love to measure the width of the upper central incisors because I like to know if I'm dealing with an average tooth. If I'm dealing with a 9-millimeter width of a central incisor, fantastic. The good news is that's the majority of the population. In the bell curve of society, most people have the average. And then you have that percentage that's large and the percentage that's small. But since we all see lots of people all day and all week and all year long, some of these walk in. So the key to the width of the upper central incisor is that once I see a 10 millimeter or an 11 millimeter, I'm immediately looking into the buccal areas to see what kind of recession do I have there, if any. Do I have a nice thick bone or alveolar housing that these teeth are in? Because having those large teeth and it being a con uh, contributor to the crowding, obviously I'm looking to develop proper arch form and proper arch width to hold those teeth. Do I have the right foundation to move them into? So I'm a big fan of measuring those centrals and making sure we're on track to have the right foundation to expand for proper arch form and proper arch width to accommodate the tooth size that presents itself. Now, there are two things that are not causes of crowding, and we should cover them, because these two items here lead us down a path of treating symptoms versus treating causes. If we're looking at our photos and diagnosing our patients based on the four items I just gave you, improper arch form, improper arch width, improper torque of anterior teeth and large teeth, if we're looking at those four items, then we're developing treatment plans that address the cause of the trouble. If we're looking at these next two items I'm about to show you, then we're looking at things that are symptoms of crowding. And treating the symptoms of crowding gives you a different outcome than treating the cause. So here's the number one, not a cause of crowding. Too many premolars. Too many premolars is not a cause of crowding. It may look like they don't fit. Fantastic. I know the picture. I've seen it. I have people who come in very crowded and it just looks like those four premolars will not fit. Boy, we should take them out. That depends. There are so many more things to look at. One way to look at the mouth is to see 12 teeth versus 14 in an arch and can 12 fit. Well, that's one way to imagine it. And that's really not the correct way to do it because in, if you're heading down that road, what you're looking at are trying to treat symptoms. And having too many premolars is not the case. We're supposed to have eight. Now, we know what those cases look like. The more and more serial bicuspid extraction cases that you see, the more and more you realize that, you know, it really is second best choice because the patients who have 12 teeth against 12 teeth and had the serial bicuspids, few and far between do you see having had a perfect orthodontic result and having had a nice occlusion set up, and having had a nice aesthetically appealing smile, and all of the things that go into setting up a, a beautiful finish with Invisalign are really tough to do when you take out four premolars. So we're not in a hurry to extract teeth. And if we do so, we're really not treating the cause. And the next one, too many lower incisors. Okay, too many lower incisors is not a cause of crowding. That's a symptom of the crowding. Yes, I know the patients who walk in. I see the photographs all the time. It just looks like three teeth fit. 
I can look at those photos all day and all night, and you can show me them and tell me that, you know, three just fit. And I agree. When you look at the lower six teeth, sometimes you see immediately that three fit. But the point is not to focus on the lower anterior teeth. It really doesn't matter how much crowding is there. You have to start to reverse your train of thought and your eyes to the upper arch. What kind of upper arch form do I have? What kind of upper arch width do I have? Do I have large teeth? Are they really wide? Because as soon as you establish, oh my goodness, this patient has improper arch form and improper arch width, when you start to change the shape and size of that maxillary arch, the lower is going to follow it. And all of a sudden, you need those four incisors. So you don't want to start extracting a lower incisor just to make the other three fit in there. That's treating a symptom, and it's also addressing a tiny area of the mouth. That's working in an area of six teeth. We're really looking to work in an area of 28 teeth because ultimately when you're doing Invisalign, you have a number of goals in mind for your patient. The first is obviously a beautifully appealing smile. Well, that comes from having all of the teeth in place, including the lower four incisors. And the second thing we're really looking for is a perfect occlusion so that they can not only maintain the tooth structure, any restorations you might be doing, and their periodontal health for a lifetime. And the way you get perfect occlusion is by having all of the teeth in a proper position to keep them coming together in a fashion that's cooperative and not destructive. Now, secret number four, let's go cover the buccolingual inclination. We can practice saying it three times fast on our own tonight when we have nothing better to do. But that's a handful, buccolingual inclination. All right, let's define that. I'm going to read this a couple of times just to be clear. I got this definition from the ABO. It's the American Board of Orthodontics. And that is the board that orthodontists go to and certify through. So when you're going to become board certified, they will examine cases that are presented, and they're going to have criteria. Obviously, there are criteria that they look at. Well, buccolingual inclination happens to be one of them. So let me read this, and then I'm going to put it up in, in photographic view so you can understand it completely. The buccolingual inclination of the maxillary and mandibular posterior teeth. See, it says posterior. The buccolingual inclination of the maxillary and mandibular posterior teeth is assessed by using a flat surface that is extended between the occlusal surfaces of the right and left posterior teeth. There should not be a significant difference between the heights of the buccal and lingual cusps of the maxillary and mandibular premolars and molars with all cusps within one millimeter of the straight edge. Okay. The buccolingual inclination of the maxillary and mandibular posterior teeth is assessed by using a flat surface that is extended between the occlusal surfaces of the right and left posterior teeth. There should not be a significant difference between the heights of the buccal and lingual cusps of the maxillary and mandibular premolars and molars with all cusps within one millimeter of the straight edge. Let me show you what this looks like in a picture. Again, you get to see my typodont. What I've done with the lower arch here in this type, and I've laid a ruler right across the first molars. And by laying a ruler across the first molar and then taking a look from the anterior view, you could appreciate that definition. It means that you would like to have all cusps touching the ruler. In other words, when the posterior teeth are upright, okay, the buccolingual inclination is, how are those teeth inclined? Are they inclined towards the tongue, towards the cheek, or are they vertical? When they're vertical, it sets up the cusps to touch that ruler. And if we have all of the cusps touching that ruler, well, we're in great shape. 
the further those teeth lean towards the tongue, you could imagine, only the buccal cusps will touch the ruler. And the lingual cusps will be farther and farther away from that ruler as the teeth lean to the lingual. So now we know as part of board certification in the orthodontic world, they like those cusps to be on top of that ruler, touching that ruler within and the degree of, uh, let's say, the degree of um, opening they would give you is one millimeter. So you have a leeway of one millimeter. Well, that's not a lot. It means that those posterior teeth should be upright. If we lay it across the second molar, the same thing. Lay it across the second molars and take our picture, and we would see that all of those cusps should come within a millimeter. And here's from the lingual view. And so if we have the lower teeth upright enough, we could see here we miss by a millimeter. We miss by a millimeter. Our typodont model measured 33. Remember the transverse measurement of the upper arch of our typodont model was 33? If it was 35, then the upper molars would be a millimeter wider on each side. And if this was a millimeter up on each side, we'd be even closer here. So you know, all of a sudden you can see the pieces of the puzzle starting to fit. A 35 millimeter transverse measurement typically comes with teeth that are vertically positioned or have very little buccal lingual inclination such that the buccal and lingual cusps all would touch a flat surface coming across the end. Well, what's the significance of that? The significance of having the proper buccal lingual inclination has to do with occlusal forces and how that patient is going to do long term. Okay? It does have an aesthetic issue because when the patient smiles and you look into that buccal corridor, you don't like to see the black triangles, you want to see a full you know, smile. That's part of buccal lingual inclination, getting the teeth out to position so that you get the full smile. But the real reason it's done is for the occlusal forces because we know that there's a big difference between axial or vertical forces and lateral or horizontal forces. Lateral or horizontal forces are destructive and cause trouble over time on all levels, tooth, gum, and bone. But axial or vertical forces direct the force from the occlusal right through the bone via the root. And if we take a look at this next slide, I'll introduce you to my two uncles in the construction business. And I can say that, don't get all offended, I am Italian 100% through and through, and I do have uncles in the construction business. But this is Mario and Luigi, my two little buddies, to demonstrate what is proper and improper occlusal forces. Now, if you take a look at A, Mario over here does not have the proper ladder to get above the tooth and direct a force that would head down the root. So he's causing occlusal trauma to that tooth because he presents and produces a horizontal or lateral force, and we know that's improper. Whereas Luigi has the proper ladder, he gets to the right height, and if we have the teeth upright in the mouth, we have the best chance of those teeth landing and directing axial or vertical forces. And so establishing proper width and, and ensuring that we have buccal lingual inclination taken care of, all of a sudden we deliver a better occlusion. Let's look at some cases real quick to show you what we mean in the real world. Because when Beth walks in and has an issue with her smile, she's certainly concerned with the teeth, you know, 7 and 10 look a little bit off right there, and she'll want to correct that. Well, we have to take a look in the mouth to see what's going on. And when we look in there, we can see automatically, well, they're rotated. We have 7 and 10 rotated. We'd like to correct them. We can see the recession over here. Beth happens to be a 62-year-old female. So we would expect to see some amount of recession, and she certainly has areas of it. So when we take a look at a case like this, we know right away from this photograph, well, we, we won't really have proclining as an advantage. So with proclining out of the picture, we're down to expanding and also IPR. So those are two nice choices. So as we move through the photos and we look at the upper arch, 
We certainly like to focus on this picture. It's my favorite picture. Looking into the upper arch gets me started. Remember, my secret number one is the maxillary arch is the key. Now, if we look into this photograph, it's very easy at a glance to be hypnotized by those two teeth, seven and ten. And what I mean by hypnotized is looking in there and saying, wow, there's just two teeth out of place. Seven and ten look like they need attention. That would be a little bit short-sighted because the reality is 14 teeth are out of place here. And if I want to get 7 and 10 in proper position, I have to move 14 teeth to get them in. And if I'm going to address or treat causes of that crowding, I'm going to look at improper arch form here because it's more of a V or a box with a V combined because that arch comes straight up, straight across, and straight back. So V-shape, box-shape combination of it is certainly not a perfect Roman arch that we'd like to see right around. Now, one thing we like to consider here is Imagine 7 and 10 having erupted perfectly straight, okay? Now, if 7 and 10 had erupted perfectly straight into position, what would have happened to the canine? Interesting thought, right? If 7 and 10 erupted perfectly into position, the canine would have erupted distal buccal to its current position. And so if I want to get that lateral where it belongs, I would have to draw the canine distal buccal. In order to draw the canine distal buccal, I can set up the posterior teeth to be wider. And by expanding the arch, driving the arch a little wider, we produce the room to draw the canine back to unravel the lateral. And so when we measure the transverse dimension for Beth, if we measure the transverse measurement over here at 31 or 32, we know she's a little shy. And part of the reason she's shy is because the teeth didn't come in perfectly straight. So if I take someone who's 30 or 31, I know I can look for four millimeters of expansion here. And if I did two on each side, I would immediately look at the foundation past my mirror and say, wow, there's a pretty good amount of alveolar housing over here. If I can see the structure outside of the molars and premolars, I'm really in good shape to give myself a couple of millimeters of expansion on each side. And on top of that, we have great opportunity to do IPR because we've got restorations back here. So we could do wonderful IPR on some of these posterior restorations, guide these teeth wider, draw that canine back and unravel 7 and 10. And that's one way to do it. Okay. The lower arch. We didn't even look at it yet, but now we get a view of what's here. Well, it's a pretty severe amount of crowding. It's the kind of picture that immediately we would look and say, you know, three incisors fit there. And there's nothing wrong with that statement because when you look at these six teeth, certainly only three would fit. But we haven't given them their due diagnosis and treatment planning, looking at six. What's going on back here? These are leaning in. These molars are leaning in so far. You can read the whole buccal surface all the way down to the recession. And that's not where the alveolar housing is. We could tip these teeth up, and as those teeth expand, and this one also, it gives you room back because as you upright or expand those lower teeth, number one, you get more arch length all the way around to fit these teeth in. Number two, you improve the buccal lingual inclination. Now, these are crowns back here, but it's no surprise that teeth that are leaning in towards the tongue over the course of a lifetime have had fillings, then root canals, then crowns. They're going through the gamut of dentistry, most likely because a, a component of that is their occlusion. And this patient does not have a proper occlusion set up in the posterior when the teeth are leaning that far in. So now we take a look at a full diagnosis and we know, well, if the upper arch allows us to do some expanding in the posterior, then we can work on our 
buccolingual inclination of those lower posteriors, <clears throat> uprighting those teeth, <clears throat> which should open up some room to get these lower anterior teeth in place. So let's take a look at her right side. Most of the population, I think it's to the tune of about 60%, have the class 1 for you. So you're going to have that class 1 canine and molar in 60% of the population, and that's good news because then you look at your class 2s and they'll have a significant portion of the remainder, maybe 30, 35, and class 3 might be 5% of the population, something like that right now. So you, you're in luck when you see your class 1 canine and molar because you have no AP corrections to make for a case like this. So we take a look at the ClinCheck page, and it'll show us different views, but I like to focus right in on the maxillary arch because I know I wanted to bump it out a little bit. I know there's IPR in the case because I put it in there. I put it behind the canine, and canine premolar IPR is wonderful when we're establishing width. If we're going to expand, then I love to put the IPR on the posterior teeth. So for 7 and 10 like this, I'd like to see them treat me well. I try not to IPR them. I find that IPRing in the anterior the cutting and spinning technique, so to speak, doesn't work very well and those teeth don't track nicely. But if we're expanding and creating the room and then bringing the teeth into place without IPRing those areas, I find it tracks better for me. So let's press play and we'll look at that upper arch and we'll see a little molar and premolar expansion. The canines will draw back to their position and 7 and 10 will be placed. And so now we have a wider arch. So we've established our proper arch width. We now have a better arch form. Now we have that Roman arch we're looking for, following those cusps and incisal edges all the way around. So as we play that view, we can see how the canines were brought to position and the lateral was then brought into position. And if this was a patient who walked in without any crowding, that's where the canine would be. But since the, did, the, the patient didn't walk in that way, seven antenna rotated, the canine is mesial to where it should be. So we want to set all 14 teeth where they belong, and that's how 7 and 10 go to place beautifully. Now in the lower arch, obviously the lower teeth need to be expanded or uprighting, as we call it, to establish proper buccolingual inclination. And by doing that, it gives us room for these teeth. Now the, the IPR count in the lower arch was 1.5 millimeters. I did 0 0.5, 0 0.5, and 0.5. I started at the canine, number 22, and there was 0.5 here and 0.5 between the two premolars and 0.5 between 19 and 20. And 1.5 was the total IPR count for the lower arch to unravel what could be, if you were looking at the 16th, maybe 5 millimeters of crowding, something like that. So with a very small amount of IPR, we can unravel some very nice crowding in the lower arch and keep all of the teeth. And obviously we should have nice overbite, overjet canine guidance at the end of the case and by having all of those teeth placed appropriately, the uprighting allows us to have better occlusal forces on the posterior teeth. So when we take a look at final photos, we can recognize, well, the arch is a little bit wider to the tune of about three or four millimeters. The alveolar housing is still out there. We haven't caused any harm periodontally by going wider. We still have a nice foundation out there. We can follow the cusps and the incisal edges all the way around. And this case was treated without attachments on seven and 10, okay? So that technique for me without attachments on 7 and 10 has them follow very nicely. By establishing the proper arch form and the proper arch width in the upper arch, it allows the lower arch to follow it. And as we upright those teeth that we once saw leaning in completely towards the tongue, 
when the buccal lingual inclination is taken care of and they're upright, all of a sudden there's a lot more room because the arch form is different, the arch length is different, the arch width is different. And so all of a sudden we can keep those four incisors and uh, here's the lingual bar in place. And I'm a big fan of that lingual bar, by the way. So I like to keep all four incisors and have the patient have a nice occlusion at the end of the case with teeth that are upright, proper arch form, proper arch width, and in the end, we get the smile. It's almost incidental that the smile will occur because as you develop width, you fill in the sides. A little bit of bleach gel goes a long way, and so I recognize this photo is a little darker. Her teeth were not that brown to begin with. That's, the whole photo is darker. But the, a little bleaching and Invisalign goes a long way. So you're, you're looking at teeth that are unrestored. It's her own enamel. There are no veneers or, and or crowns across there. But having established a nice pattern of developing and treating arch form and arch width, we can align all those teeth and maintain a nice midline. And having all four teeth in place gives the patient their midline and also a beautiful smile. Now let's meet Robert. Robert is walking around scaring all the kids in the neighborhood. So Robert can't go out in public like this, and we're aware of that. But Robert is a young and healthy and educated and uh, willing participant when he is educated about the benefits of Invisalign. A question just to keep in the back of your head is why would Robert <clears throat> be walking around with a smile like that? And you'll be amazed how many of your patients are walking around looking like this because they have been told that they're not candidates for Invisalign. And usually it comes in a package of three items they've been told. Number one, they need two years in braces. Number two, they might need extractions. Number three, they're not a candidate for Invisalign. Invisalign really can't do that, can't accomplish the goals that should be done for them. And so the more you talk to your patients, the more you educate your patients, the more you recognize they're very willing to do Invisalign. But the dynamic is such that patients like this, a 38-year-old male, will choose to keep that smile that he can't stand for the rest of his life versus doing braces even for a year and a half to two years. Now, that's a powerful choice, right? This patient knows he could have had braces. He's been for consultations. But to choose braces for a year and a half is unappealing. And so they will stay with a smile they don't like forever versus put in the year and a half. That allows plenty of opportunity for Invisalign treatment. Let's take a look at Robert. When we look into the mouth, we can see buccal-lingual inclination from the anterior view. When you see the posterior segments leaning in this far, you have a poor occlusion. This is a traumatic occlusion because the teeth are leaning in so far, you could impossibly have them be upright enough that the buccal and lingual cusps would touch a ruler laid across the flat part of those back molars. And so by looking at an occlusion like this, you know this arch is way too narrow. You have improper arch form and improper arch width without even looking at the individual arches yet. So clearly what you're looking at here is an omega-shaped arch. So let's take a look at it. The omega-shaped arch is characterized by teeth 2 and 15 being placed much more to the buccal and almost in perfect position. 2 and 15 almost always occupy the right spot. But the first molars come in, and they come in heavy. So 3 and 14 are positioned, obviously, to the lingual. And it sets up a perfect space here to measure a transverse measurement. And Robert, if we were to place our Bowley gauge through here and measure it, and we did, he measures 25 millimeters between these two teeth. So I have 25 millimeters to work with between these two teeth. 
and we can see that perfect omega shape where we kind of follow the cusps and curve out to the canine. So we've got this indentation, this curve here. Then we wrap around here and we come back out this way. Now looking past the teeth, it's always important to look past the teeth. You notice out here, there's a line out here. Well, that line delineates the shape of his alveolar housing, the alveolus, the maxillary bone that's holding these teeth. Interestingly enough, does not have an omega shape. It has a dome shape. Look at that. Surprise, surprise. Most times, the alveolar housing doesn't follow the alveolar shape of the, um, I'm sorry, the omega shape of the teeth. Your alveolar housing will probably be a dome shape. And so we know now the foundation is already laid in the right place. We have to move the teeth to follow it. There's a lot of bone out here to move those teeth to set them where they belong. So now we know we're starting out very narrow. So improper arch width, absolutely. Improper arch form, absolutely. We have a classic omega shaped here. I see 7 and 10 where they are. I'm not worried about 7 and 10. We're going to get them in position without IPRing these anterior teeth. This is another case where I provided posterior IPR to establish the position of all of these teeth. And with a lot of expansion and a little bit of posterior IPR, we can have 7 and 10 flow to position, okay? without attachments. Well, obviously, with the upper arch looking like that, the lower arch is going to have an amount of crowding. And there's a significant amount of crowding here. But never mind the anterior teeth. Back to these teeth. They're leaning in. We can see the entire buccal surface all the way down. We knew from the anterior view these teeth were angled in. And there's no way the lingual cusps are on the same level as these. If we were to lay a flat piece across here, we would see these sunken way below it. So we have to keep in mind buccal lingual inclination and look to upright this. And the alveolar housing is such that it is in the shape of a nice Roman arch. We'd love to establish a dome for these teeth. The right side, we've got a class one. So again, with a nice class one molar and canine, this should be a really straightforward case. We're looking at very healthy bone here. We knew from the occlusal view, we've got a nice thickness of alveolar housing up here to move those teeth into, upper and lower little crossbite over here in the one molar, not too much of a concern. Uh, those of you providing Invisalign know that correcting a single tooth crossbite is very predictable and uh, should not offer any complication to the case. The ClinCheck, let's take a look. Obviously, my favorite view is that upper arch, and that upper arch has that beautiful omega shape, which we want to get rid of. And the way to get rid of that is with Invisalign. It would be the choice of treatment for this arch uh, every day of the week to get Invisalign aligners in there to do this. Expand and provide proper arch form and proper arch width. Now we have a beautiful Roman arch. So we've taken an omega shape arch and created a beautiful Roman arch. And now you're ready for the lower to follow it and have all those teeth fit in with a minimal amount of IPR. And this case had about two millimeters of IPR in each arch but in the posterior. I keep it in my canine and premolar areas. I'm just happier to do posterior IPR than anterior. So I like expanding, and when this patient measured 25 millimeters to start, we ended up doing 7 millimeters of expansion between 3 and 14. The final width across here is now 32. And so we went from 25 to 32. And the reason we're at 32 is because we had included a couple millimeters of IPR and he does have average size teeth. These are about 8.8 .8 millimeter central incisors. So with a 32 transverse measurement and having had some IPR, he has the right arch width and arch form. And 7 and 10 flow to position beautifully. Now this case was 20 aligners. 
we used 20 aligners, and then I used eight for refinement to make it perfect. And we finished him here. And we can see here, when you look into the posterior segment, you can see that buccal-lingual inclination, what I mean. These teeth are upright now. And when they're upright, we don't have the interferences that are present over here because all of the inclines on these posterior teeth hit, and that produces interferences, lateral or horizontal forces, and really an occlusal design that is going to destroy those teeth and those fillings and that gum and bone eventually, whereas this is much healthier and a proper occlusion, even by the best of orthodontic standards. What does the arch look like? Well, it looks like this. When we're finished with 28 aligners, which is a 14-month time frame, we have 32 millimeters between these teeth now. And so here we have proper alignment of all of those teeth, and 7 and 10 go to position beautifully, and a little bleach gel goes a long way, takes all the color off there. The lower arch will follow. If we've done 28 aligners and spent 14 months shaping that upper arch and developing proper arch form and proper arch width, the lower teeth are going to upright, and the difference between this and this is huge because this is a tooth or posterior segment that's set up to receive proper vertical occlusal forces because the buccolingual inclination of these teeth is perfect and here too. And when you set that up properly, you could have nothing but an improvement in your posterior occlusion. So we don't want to get too focused on this when we could drive all of those teeth into proper placement, not only enhancing the aesthetic result, but producing the proper occlusal setup for your patient to go through with vertical or axial forces on those teeth. And then as an end result, <clears throat> almost incidental, you're going to get a nice smile because aligning, leveling, aligning, derotating, providing expansion, filling in that buccal cord or uprighting those posterior teeth, all of the things we've been doing to establish uh, the final positions of the teeth make for a nicer smile. So at the end, we could let uh, Robert back in public, obviously. He won't be scaring the kids anymore in the neighborhood. Now, Laura, a little different case. She's not so happy. Obviously, you could see that here. And she's not so happy for good reason. She's about 62 years old, and she's unhappy with her smile. And as a layperson, she would describe it as buck teeth or bugs bunny, you know, two front teeth. These are sticking out. She has nothing to show for the rest of her mouth, and so her smile is compromised, and she even pulls her lip up to hide what doesn't show there. So it's really not a natural smile to begin with. And when we look in the mouth, we could see and determine that these are average-sized teeth. And I can tell you they're 9-millimeter centrals, so they're not big. You know, just because they're prominent in the smile doesn't mean 8 and 9 are large or wide teeth. So when I saw that smile, the first thing I did was measure 8 and 9 to determine, well, we have average width of tooth. There must be something else going on here. And the right side gives me that class one setup. We've got canine and molar in class one on both sides. So having a class one occlusion always is much nicer and easier to contend with. But the upper arch shows me the big problem. And if we're focusing in on the entire arch, remember the maxillary arch is the key, we could see here, that's improper arch form. And so if we're looking at improper arch form and we're taking a look at how that's more like a letter V, that's a very common diagnosis, to have a V-shaped arch be protrusive. Those go hand in hand. Typically, a V-shaped arch is a little protrusive. Well, if we're going to develop that arch uh, width here, we could retract 8 and 9 a little bit, and that would set us up for success. And we can see here the amount of crowding that gets associated with having the improper arch form. 
And when you look at the posterior teeth more closely, you see how they're leaning into the tongue. And they're leaning in so far that all we can see the entire buccal surface all the way down, including the concavity here. So that's an amazing lean that those teeth have. They need to be upright. And we can upright those teeth and by doing so, improves the occlusal forces on the posterior segment. So when we look at that ClinCheck, we'd love to see that upper arch develop into a proper arch form, and that would allow the lower teeth to be uprighted. So the teeth that were once leaning in stand tall and straight, improving that buccal lingual inclination, and that sets us up for great success to take the patient from here to here. Now let's get to that upper arch and take a look at the difference. This is what we mean. Getting that V-shaped arch to a nice Roman arch. So we went from Gothic to Roman using Invisalign and the patient will let you change a filling too. Obviously that'll become an eyesore after the arch is shaped nicely. So once we have these teeth in position like this, the lower should follow. And there's a big difference in how this tooth is upright versus it's leaning in over here. So from leaning in completely, poor buccal lingual inclination, to appropriate buccal lingual inclination, the uprighting of those posterior teeth allows the room to unravel that crowding. So now we did have four millimeters of IPR in this arch. There's a lot of crowding here. And to go through the exercise, we could say, well, there's probably three millimeters here, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe 10. You could almost get to 10 millimeters of crowding easily we did four millimeters of IPR, but the trade-off there is that four millimeters of IPR versus an extraction, premolars and or incisors. So the four millimeters of IPR becomes an advantage in the case because we don't have to lose good healthy teeth. And if we take a look at Laura before and after, we can see, well, now she's got a more appealing smile. She'll pull those lips back and show you all the teeth because they actually fill in her smile. And here for you today, I actually have the four-year follow-up. So four years later, we have a set of photographs showing you a perfectly healthy foundation, very nice buccal lingual inclination. Those teeth are upright, so they come together with proper occlusal forces on the back teeth. And when we look at our class one, it still exists on both sides. And our arch form holds its position because the occlusion is set up properly. It's not going to sink back in. So we're gonna have that perfect arch form maintain itself and over time, even the posterior molars, which were completely leaning in before we start, are upright and still upright. And that allows you to set up nice arch form, unravel very good amounts of crowding, and address everything, including the posterior teeth. So we're keeping track of those keys to success, right? The secrets, the maxillary arch is the key, the transverse measurement's important. Make sure you're looking at what really caused that crowding. Is it improper arch form, improper arch width? Those are two things to maintain and keep track of. And buccal lingual inclination. Now, the last case I want to share with you is Olivia. And this is a 17-year-old girl. Now, a 17-year-old girl, it's very difficult, in my experience, to get a 17-year-old girl in braces. That's senior year of high school. And senior year of high school has its own um, issues and things to contend with, but to wear braces as a senior in high school, number one would be a rarity. There wouldn't be many of you, and it would probably be a source of trouble for a teenage girl to have braces on. So she refused orthodontic care. And let's get to the case. Okay, we have a class one, so we're in great shape. Canines and molars, class one. Healthy gum and bone, looking good. When we look into the anterior photograph, we can start to see what's happening. 
Certainly we recognize these canines are out of position. That's not canine guidance happening over here. There's a big gap between this canine and that canine. We can count three incisors, but we don't see the fourth just yet. And so we're not perfectly level or aligned or derotated, but we have to explore a little further to find out where the problem is. Well, I can see the photograph is a little blurry over here. I apologize. Obviously, I took that photo. Uh, this arch form is not correct, and if we want to have perfect arch form here, that will go a long way to help us with what's happening here. And the reason I'm showing this case is because if I take a look at my four keys or my four secrets, they all apply to this case. And <clears throat> they all apply in such a way that there is no IPR to treat this case. And Olivia is one of the most recent, let's say, finishes that we've had. So in the past five years of providing Invisalign, I certainly have evolved in how I you know, attack my cases and, and how I treat them. And Olivia, from the moment I saw her, I knew I was not going to have any IPR in the mouth and I was not going to take out a tooth because we're going to keep that tooth. There's too much going on here where these teeth are leaning in completely. They're totally derotated. The width is narrow, both upper and lower, and the arch form is wrong. So we have improper arch form, improper arch width. We need our buccal lingual inclination addressed. And the good news is we don't have large teeth, so we should be in good shape. If we watch the ClinCheck play, we can see how the upper arch is going to take proper form. Predominantly, premolars are being expanded. The upper molars are not that far out of position. So we're going to have a, mostly a premolar change there, getting that arch form developed. But without any IPR, we can establish a beautiful arch form around the upper arch, which means the lower is going to follow it. And so when the lower follows it, that tooth, number 23, should be able to walk to position as the arch is being developed. Okay? So if we applied all those secrets that I gave you to Olivia, it becomes a very routine case, not a complicated case. It is a liner-only therapy. And now I'm going to show you the results. At 11 aligners, the reason that's up there is because that is the final upper aligner. We just need 11 to make that arch form perfect. This happens to be the photograph I used at the beginning of the presentation to show you what is good arch form. This is good arch form. And once we develop good arch form, we know the lower teeth, when the buccolingual inclination is correct, will have to follow. But let's take a look at a, the process. Here's aligner number 12. So aligner number 12, when the patient opens, we're halfway through treatment. We're going to show you, obviously, the plaque and tartar buildup. We always had to keep cleaning that tooth off because it was hard for her to maintain. She's opening here for me. That's not her occlusion. I just wanted her to open to kind of show that tooth in a picture. Lots of attachments, driving those teeth to become upright and derotated. And we have to unravel all of those premolars and derotate everything and establish the proper buccal-lingual inclination of all of those posterior teeth to have this fall into place. Aligner number 20, here's the 10-month mark. At 10 months, the premolars are starting to stand tall, and now we have teeth that are derotated, and we have room for number 23 to start taking its position. And here's the aligner at number 20 showing you the fit. It's a little bit off, but we're not too concerned. You know, we're bringing that tooth really from a, a very poor position to an excellent position, and we always have refinement to do a little more work if we'd like. At aligner 23, we're approaching the one-year mark, and we can see at the one-year mark, we're developing our arch form and our arch width, and our buccal-lingual inclination is starting to shape up. These teeth are no longer leaning in, and the positioning or the space for that tooth is now evolving into a perfect spot to park it in. When we get to 27, it is the first round. You know, 27 was the count of aligners for the lower, 11 on top, 27 on the bottom, and this tooth is now here. So we've come a long way with our positioning of all of those teeth, but we need a little refinement. So at this point, 
we do some refinement to finish the job because this needs to come a little bit more and that root has to follow under it to have that perfectly placed. But you can appreciate the amount of premolar movement because these teeth were turned and leaning in, are now upright and derotated. And the same thing here, how far these teeth were leaning in versus how they're standing tall now. And so as we upright those posterior teeth, the final set of photos looks like this. We knew our upper arch was completed at a liner number 11, but the lower arch looks like this. And so to have that arch form established on the top, arch form and arch width, allows you to then establish your buccolingual inclination of the posterior teeth and establish the proper arch form and width of the lower. And all of a sudden, a tooth that really looks like an extraction over here can look like this over here with no IPR in the case. Right side, class one, this needs a little time to settle. And as you're wearing retainers like Vivera overnight, it'll give this a chance to settle. And as it does, we would change the retainer once it's in a, a better place. Here again, class one occlusion. We've established the molar, the canine position. Everything is lined up very nicely, no interferences. And when the patient bites down, we have level aligned and derotated the entire case. And when we look in there, we have upright posterior segments not leaning in, causing interferences and poor occlusion. And so as we establish the width and arch form, we also establish the canine guidance. And if you look at this picture here on the left, you can identify that the canines are not in a position to offer guidance. And yet over here they are. And so by establishing all of the things we talked about today, <clears throat> recognizing that the maxillary arch form has to be addressed, recognizing that the width has to be accurate, and recognizing that the buccolingual inclination has to be appropriate of those posterior teeth, <clears throat> start setting up a position where you can have overbite, overjet, canine guidance, and not to mention keeping all of the teeth. And now we have four incisors sitting there. And that makes for a very happy Olivia, because here you have a teenager that went through a senior year of high school wearing Invisalign versus wearing braces. A little bit of bleach gel goes a long way for teeth that were not dark to begin with. And now she's a college student in D.C. and doing very well and loving her smile. So in summary, focus on the maxillary arch. Pay attention to the upper arch. Look for the arch form. Look for the arch width. And pay attention to the posterior teeth. Arch form and arch width are huge. Those are your two big causes of crowding. If you're looking at the arch form and the arch width, then you're, it really allows you to open up your world to unravel more significant amounts of crowding with less or no IPR, especially on younger, healthier patients. And by identifying what caused the crowding, it gives you an opportunity to treat the cause of the crowding and not the symptoms of the crowding. The transverse measurements, for many of you that might be a new dimension, you certainly can pull out orthodontic textbooks and look it up. Uh, it is the distance between 3 and 14. It gives you an idea or at least a range of, you know, where is my patient versus where they should be. And to have somewhere around 35 millimeters would be appropriate. And so when you start measuring the transverse measurement and you see a patient that's 30, 31, 28, 29, or in Robert's case, 25, you know you have some room to expand. And so now you have to take a look at the size of the tooth, the health of the periodontal structures, and start to determine, okay, where is my arch form? Where is my arch width? How about that buccolingual inclination? And the more and more I addressed the posterior teeth and I uprighted them, the more and more I saw there was not a need for occlusal adjustments at the end of cases because when you have that buccolingual inclination established, you have the right occlusion. So almost always you're going to be expanding or uprighting those posterior teeth into a better occlusal scheme, not a worse occlusal scheme.
And for me, I'm wrapping it up there and saying thank you. You're a wonderful audience. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. I hope you got to enjoy a little bit of lunch at the same time maybe. And I think we are, are, we are going to turn it back over to David. He's going to open up for a few questions. Thank you, Dr. Morali. If you could uh, just uh, go to the next slide, that would be great. Thank you very much. There you go. And Dr. Morali, I just want to thank you. What a wonderful presentation. I wanted to cover one quick thing that's very important in order for you to receive your CE certificates for the program. <laughs> Currently on the screen right now, there's a link at www.alignedtechinstitute.com slash AskSurvey. Once you complete uh, your survey, you'll have immediate access to your CE certificate, so please go there after the completion of the program. If you experience any problems with viewing any of the presentation, the archive program will be available one week from today at AlignTechInstitute.com. Now, Kelly, I think we're ready to queue up some audio questions. Can we go ahead and open up the lines? Yes. If you would like to ask an audio question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. And Dr. Morales, if you don't mind, while we're waiting for audio questions, I have several text questions. The first one comes from David Wilhite. What causes improper uh, arch form? Oh, yes. Now, taking it a step back, if we have the causes of crowding being improper arch form and improper arch width, there, at some point in time there was a cause of the improper arch form and the improper arch width. And the, the, the more research that's being done and the, the more light that's getting shed on the proper development of the maxillary arch, the more we're recognizing that it's probably an airway issue. And so when we look at uh, children as they're developing, <coughs> children who are open mouth breathers, who have large tonsils, large adenoids, have restricted airway, are clenching, grinding at night, all of those things lead to improper breathing, and improper breathing is related to the development of the maxillary arch. And so the, some of the debate now is kind of like chicken or egg. Which came first? The, was it the, the breathing in the airway, then the maxillary arch doesn't develop properly, or the maxillary arch doesn't develop properly, makes the airway smaller, then that conti contributes to further you know, underdevelopment of the maxilla? But at any rate, what, what it really boils down to is that <clears throat> an improper airway and someone who is not a nose breather is certainly going to contribute to the improper or underdevelopment of the maxillary arch, and then you get improper arch form. Uh, so mouth breathing is a problem. Some of the other reasons that have been cited and more research will have to be done to determine whether it's really an actual cause or not are the, the dietary changes that we've seen and as we evolve as a society, certainly. Um, in, in, a cult, in cultures where breastfeeding is the norm, um, we see that maxillary arch development occurs pretty normally, whereas in cultures where breastfeeding is not the norm, the population has uh, more underdevelopment of the maxilla noted, as well as the diet, too. Softer and gentler foods also are now being related to the improper development of the maxillary arch. And if you look back at cultures or in history where you had much harder diets on the, the, the bite, you would develop more properly. And it, it might just be the use of the muscles and also the teeth that helps to develop the arch form. So um, a lot of that is in the literature now. It's certainly an area that's being researched and looked at. But those are some of the ideas that go into what is causing the improper arch form. Thank you. Uh, Kelly, do we have any audio questions available? There are no audio questions at this time. All right. Well, uh, we have another text question. It comes from Stephen Snow. 
Uh, doesn't the goal of creating a flat occlusal plane with the buccal angle inclination positioning level cusp tips go against the goal of creating a curve of Wilson to accommodate a spherical arc of motion? It, it, okay, it doesn't go against it completely. And having a curve of Wilson doesn't mean you don't have proper buccolingual inclination. The, the buccolingual inclination, when you had a tolerance of one millimeter in there, if you have a tolerance of one millimeter, you can still have a curve of Wilson. And if you look at your um, criteria in the ABO, there's a long list of things that they go by to determine board certified type of status. And the curve of Wilson is way down the list, and on some it's excluded. And so it, it might not be one of the bigger priorities as far as having the proper buccolingual inclination versus having the curve of Wilson. You're probably better off having proper buccolingual inclination because you're more guaranteed to have your occlusal forces be vertical or axial and driven than right into the bone. All right, um, I've got another text question. Uh, this comes from uh, Nazreen Hadar-Samat. What type of retainers do those patients wear? Those, Beth had a lower lingual bar placed, and the remainder of the cases had Vivera delivered. And so um, Beth, when we put the lower lingual bar on, we made the Vivera over the top of it. But I'm a big fan of Vivera, and once it was available, I began putting all of my existing patients into it, and every patient going forward receives Vivera. It's the appropriate retainer after Invisalign treatment to uh, maintain the results that you had, and then you just have to set up whether or not they need to wear them full-time for a little while versus going right to at-night use. All right, so Kelly, I'm going to check in with you to see if, if we have any audio questions. There are no audio questions. Okay, uh, we've got another text question. comes from Larry Levin. In the last case, the right posterior bite was slightly open and needed to settle. How does the Vivera retainer allow the teeth to settle into contact? The Vivera retainer is ordered off the last aligner, and the last aligner had that tooth missing it by a little bit. So when you look at that posterior right and it's a little bit out of occlusion, it's not a function of the aligner being in direct contact with the premolars. So when we order the Vivera and it has that little space in there and the patient's wearing it at night only, then you're going to have those teeth settle into the occlusion, and the Vivera would be a better fit at that point. If that's not the case, let's say the, the aligners are fitting perfectly and there's an opening, then you have to make an adjustment to the aligners first. In other words, cutting off the posterior segment, wearing the aligners full-time, allowing the teeth to super erupt, and then taking new impressions to get to Vivera at that point. All right. Well, we have another text question from Vincent Cardinal. Uh, for Olivia, what did you do for upper arch while continuing the lower treatment? She wore that last aligner, number 11, and when she reached about 15 or 16 on the lower, I gave her a new one. Uh, typically, in the past, what I was doing was ordering a replacement aligner. Every few aligners, I would give the patient a new one and say, okay, here's another number 11 for you, and here's your next batch of lower ones because we had to go through 27 aligners and like another eight for the refinement, and I just kept ordering. I probably went through two or three number 11 aligners for her, and today the solution is that you now have passive aligners available to you. So that, that would not be an obstacle uh, going forward, 
but in the past it wasn't so much an obstacle. It was just that you had to place an order to have a few extras. It's hard to get one aligner to last through that time and still be nice and neat and clean. Okay, thanks. Kelly, I'm going to check in with you to see if we have any audio questions. Yes, you do have a question from Rufineter Carr. Hello. Hello. Uh, yes, uh, Doctor, I had a question about uh, the case, the patient you showed by name, Robert. Uh, you, you said you used about uh, 24 retainers on him. Did you know, like, in the first consultation that you will be needing that many retainers? Or, uh, it was, it was uh, 28. He had 28 aligners. But the, the case was broken down into 20 initial aligners and 8 refinement aligners. Okay. So the part I knew about when I submitted the case was that it came back as a 20 aligner case and then I'm a big fan of refinement, so after I do the initial round, I always take impressions and look to fine-tune the case a little bit, and so I ended up with a count of 28 total. Okay, and how long does he have to wear the retainer after he finished the treatment? When he finished his treatment, I had him wear the first Vivera retainer for three months full-time. And okay. three months full-time to let those teeth stabilize. Okay. And then the mobility goes away because when you move the teeth, they have some orthodontic mobility at the end of treatment. Right. I like them to tighten up. And the way they tighten up is by having fixed or, you know, constant retention. So I make him wear the retainers for three months. And then he wears them at night only now. But he will wear them at night only for a whole year. And okay. after and that year, I'll let him go to every other night. Okay. And another question. How long did he wear his, um, the actual aligners while he was going through the treatment? Is it full-time oh, or? Yeah, only eating and drinking. That's it. And for, for my patients, I try to get them somewhere between 20 and 22 hours every day. All right. Thank you so much. That was a very nice case. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Kelly, I'm going to check in with you again to see if we have any audio calls. There are no further questions. Okay. Uh, the next question comes from uh, Jeffrey Day. Historically, I expect Invisalign to simply tilt teeth and not move them uh, bodily. However, on Olivia, number 23, moved bodily. Your comments? And by the way, in parentheses, it says, Go UB, class of 1990. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, I was a UB, class of 93. And so, uh, fellow Buffalo graduate there. Well, historically, the part about tipping the teeth, I mean, it, it's really always been a myth. Um, I don't know wh where and how it started that it, it's some sort of a tipping technique only. Invisalign is very capable of tipping teeth, but that's not all it does. And Invisalign is very capable of bodily movement, translation type of movement uh, in any facet, whether it's an incisor or a molar. When we looked at Robert's case, Robert had seven millimeters of first molar expansion. Tooth numbers three and 14 were moved seven millimeters apart. That's not tipping only because if I were to tip them only, they'd be flared out to the side. That's a little tipping to upright, but then bodily movement or expansion outright. And so you have a bodily movement or a translating effect on any tooth depending upon you know what your goals are. So I am a firm believer that Invisalign is not a tipping technique and I have seen teeth like Olivia's and teeth like Robert's and other cases where uh, you really can have beautiful translation or bodily type movements of the teeth. It's just a matter of having the proper diagnosis and treatment plan to set up where you're moving the teeth and the aligners will do the work for you. And especially when the patients wear them well. 
So I don't know about historically. It was a, I don't, I'm not sure that even when Invisalign first started, it was really only a tipping technique. I think at the beginning, maybe we just weren't sure what exactly it could do because it was new. And as a comprehensive orthodontic technique, Invisalign is very capable of providing the same types of control and movements that typical brackets and wires can do. All right, I'm going to check in one more time with Kelly. You do have a question from Thomas Williams. Uh, Doctor, uh, Tom Williams, Washington, D.C. Um, I have a 61-year-old uh, male uh, Bruxer um, with a bell-shaped uh, arch, and uh, <clears throat> he also is taking medication causing hypertrophy of the gingiva. And I'm just wondering uh, what I should uh, be addressing with this patient uh, with his expectations. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's, I would love to help you so badly, but it's a little difficult without having photos and x-rays. I'll talk more hypothetically than to actually recommend sure. doing anything on the patient. Mm -hmm. I would hate to mislead you. At 61 years old, there are a lot of things to pay attention to. Number one would be the perio pocket depth, bleeding, the tissue you mentioned as far as the medication, you might have to have that patient on a one or two month recall to keep that gum tissue under control while you're moving the teeth. You really don't want to move it through inflammation or plaque and bacteria and swollen tissue can no, cause that won't be excess. A problem. That won't be so you got that covered. Yeah, he, as far he as the actually, uh, hygiene is actually very good. He's just taking one of the uh, heart uh, meds that uh, cause hyperplastic tissue and uh, I'm, I'm considering using some electrosurge to remove some of that before we take the impressions uh, for the invisible. Okay, and then you'd have nice shallow pocketing. You'd have better impressions. You can certainly do that, and if it comes back, you can do it again. Sure. How is the bone level? Does he have a pretty uh, good complement of bone? A very good complement of bone. Very strong. Okay, well, there shouldn't be any reason then why you can't develop proper arch form and width when you measure the width of the central incisors. Does he have an average tooth, or are these big? Uh, well, he's uh, ground them down quite a bit. As I said, he's a Bruxer, and uh, we've right. lost probably two, three millimeters of his anterior teeth and uh, kind of flattened the occlusal uh, surface of the posterior teeth. Um, but uh, I would be willing to bet his, his. I would be willing to bet he's narrow. Yes, he is. As I said, he's yeah. a bell. <laughs> the more the more you look at that, that's a very interesting thing that you'll see. Your clenchers, your grinders, your Bruxers—they're going to be narrow. They're typically not wide. Mm -hmm. And so you can help out that occlusion by widening that arch. When you have the right foundation now and you've got the good perio support, you should absolutely be looking at what the distance is between 3 and 14. Get an idea. Is he around 30, 31, 28? Uh, 30, 31, right there. 30, 31. There you go. You're looking at 4 millimeters of expansion there to start. And that's if you have the 9 millimeter central incisor width. So I, I would be looking to expand that case, and you'll be oh, yeah. shocked at how much better the occlusion looks and feels to your patient once you've got those teeth wider. Yeah, I, I was actually at your presentation here in Washington in December, and uh, I just uh, wanted to review it again. I was to, this is a case that uh, has been worrying me a little bit simply because of the uh, extensive uh, you know, bruxing that this gentleman has. We have uh, put him in a passive uh, repositioning orthosis. We've seated the uh, mandible in the, in the TMJ in the correct position, and uh, we're just trying to... Uh, get the, uh, the occlusion and develop some anterior guidance here and see if we can get them in some Invisalign. So. Yeah, oh, it's going to be a great case. Yeah, I, I can't wait to, to see the end of it. Anyways, Excellent. Right, thank you very much. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. Kelly, I'm going to check in with you to see if we have any more audio questions. There are no further audio questions at this time. Okay. Um, I'm going to go then with the next text question. comes from uh, Ronald Barr. On the last case, uh, are you concerned about the midline discrepancy at the finish? 
Um, I was not. I certainly discussed that with the patient. We completed that case in August of 2010, and that was the week before she was heading to college. And so what we offered the patient was uh, follow-up re, um, refinement aligners to adjust the midline with a little bit of IPR, and the patient and mom were completely thrilled and happy to complete at that stage. So we stopped. I delivered Vivera retainers, and she took them to college. Uh, but I do offer that to patients. Certainly getting the midline right at that point would have been a minor issue, having conquered the majority of the case already. And so the midline for me is not as critical as all of the other things that we discussed. And to have that a little bit off, I don't feel like it was a compromise to the patient. And having the patient give me a choice of just taking retainers and calling it quits, fantastic. So we, we just ended it there. Kelly, I'm going to check in with you to see if any other audio questions. There are no further questions at this time. Okay. I'm going to go to um, our next question from Vincent Cardinal. How do you do posterior IPR, and what do you like to use? Okay. I am a huge fan of posterior IPR. I try to keep it all behind the canine. I love to use the Invisalign uh, discs. And so um, in the Invisalign IPR kit, there are the discs that go in our straight hand piece, the nose cone, and I'm a big fan of those. Uh, but I always break contact manually, and so I'll take – uh, a diamond strip and work my way in between the teeth or try any of the other handheld items and you know there are axis pieces that you can order those are colored and handheld you go in between the teeth Denmat makes a little seri sander that's um, held in a single hand and you can kind of looks like a little miniature hacksaw but you'd work your way between the teeth gently and I like to break contact manually because I have a huge fear of making a ledge and causing any trouble that wasn't there to begin with so breaking contact manually, moving to the Invisalign discs, uh, and usually that takes care of my IPR for me very nicely. We have another text question. It comes from Josephine Yang. Did you say that Vivera retainers will help the occlusion settle when wearing it at night? Oh, yes. Now, what happened there is if you're working off of the last aligner, there's a difference as opposed to taking an impression at the end of a case. If you finish the case and you see posteriorly that there's a little settling that would be needed, it's not appropriate to take impressions and make the Vivera because it's going to hold them right there, even at night only. In the case of Olivia, I think it's the premolar number 28 or 29 where it's a little bit out of the occlusion and it would need to settle a tiny bit. So we used the last aligner because when she was, looking, when she was in her last aligner, we could see that premolar was intruded or away from that aligner just enough that it wasn't a perfect fit. So by ordering Vivera off of the ClinCheck model, it keeps the Vivera in a position where it's elevated or above that tooth number 28 or 29, so that at night use alone means she's got all day and use of those teeth during functioning to have that tooth settle into place, and it can only settle into the um, Vivera because it was not off of an impression. All right, we've got another text question from Nancy Summerlurch. Do you always expand the posterior arch form to gain room, then uncrowd the anterior teeth? And do you ask for this in your ClinCheck setup? Well, I really don't have to ask for any type of pattern. You know, the default for Invisalign ClinChecks is um, simultaneous, not sequential. So simultaneous movement means that you can have multiple things happening at the same time. The only things that aren't happening are teeth that would be colliding, and so certain teeth may start a little later in the ClinCheck. But most of the teeth start moving, and what's happening with that is it really boils down to the, the box on the treatment form that has uh, is established for crowding. And so you have the choices for expanding, proclining, and IPRing. And typically when I've 
establish that I want to expand, I would check off expand primarily. And then if there's going to be any proclining or IPR in the case, I can fill in those boxes accordingly. But most cases are going to have expand primarily. When I'm writing my notes for the case, the special instructions, I'll write down, this is an expansion case. And I will add to it depending upon you know, what the criteria of the case is. And I can be more specific with the IPR. I would probably say, this is an expansion case, and please perform the IPR in the posterior teeth behind the canine. And that helps the technician. Uh, I'm also a big believer that when you get your first ClinCheck back, it really is just a rough draft. Like You have to pay close attention to it based on what you submitted as information on the treatment form, taking a look at how it plays through what's being moved. I like to see a lot of teeth moving. I'm a big fan of seeing all 14 teeth flow. I don't really like to see just six or eight or 10 teeth. I want to see them all line up perfectly, giving me that arch form and arch width that I like. And I, I can modify it, and everybody else can too. So. I'm not a big fan of trying to make the ClinCheck perfect in one shot and just hit accept. I like to get back that draft and then pay attention to my photos, the patient's perio, all of the dimensions we've been measuring, and then figure out, okay, do I have the right amount of expansion? Should I have more? Should I have less? And getting to the point where, with modification, I'm extremely happy with where the IPR is, how much expansion there was, and that everything takes its place appropriately to click accept. Well, Dr. Mariah, thank you very much. I know this is a topic that you have a ton of information on. Unfortunately, we're out of time. And if you've submitted a text question, again, I apologize. We'll do our best to answer it after the program. A couple of quick reminders. Please go to the link that's on your screen right now to take uh, your survey and get your CE certificate. One week from today, the entire program will be archived at linetechinstitute.com. Again, I want to thank Dr. Morali for a great presentation and for all of you for taking time out of your Friday to join us. And we look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert program. Thanks very much. Thank you. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.